Well, a very good morning to you all. It's great to, to see you. And uh, I want to begin with a question. My question is this. How does Nick Kyrgios become Ken Rosewall? That question encapsulates today's talk. Now, forgive me if you don't know these two tennis players. They are, they are generations apart and they are poles apart at times. I've never met Mr. Kyrgios, but uh, he has a reputation of being the bad boy of Australian tennis. Although it seems in recent days that there's something good going on there and all power to him for that. Uh, I once met Mr. Rosewell uh, briefly many years ago. Uh, muscles, as he was known, uh, came across to a young man as an absolute gentleman, a very gracious man. And even today, at 85 years of age, he's viewed as the respected elder of Australian tennis. And so our question is, what could possibly happen to transform an angry young man into a respected elder? This is the final talk in our series, The Dawn of Discipleship, where we're looking at following Jesus through the eyes of the first disciples. Today, we're not really here to talk about tennis players, rather about the Apostle John. The point of my tennis analogy with Nick Kyrgios is that as we read the gospel accounts, the Apostle John is something of an enigma, a puzzle that defies logic. We know actually only a little bit about him personally, and yet our vision of Jesus is significantly shaped by John's testimony to him. Okay, to, to further add to the mystery of John, he seems to be a very different character in his own gospel to the one portrayed in the other three gospels. What's going on? I've got a bit of an explanation, see if it makes sense. You see, it seems to me that the other three Gospels, Matthew, then, Matthew, uh, then Mark and Luke, they were written very close to the time of Jesus and they were published widely somewhere between about 65 and 75 AD. They paint a picture of the young man John, full of potential and yet with all of the passion and the rough edges of youth. By way of contrast, John's gospel and all of his other writings come from a much later time, probably about 95 AD, when according to second century church leaders Irenaeus and Clement of Rome, John returned to Ephesus after his exile on the island of Patmos, and at that later time he is the respected elder and the leader of the churches there and actually throughout Asia. And so John's letters, of which we have three, to the various churches uh, throughout Asia, they fit very obviously into this setting. And it was from that same period that John's gospel was also put into its final form very soon after his death by his trusted elders. How do you know this? Well, the elders tell us this at the end of John's Gospel, which we read just a few moments ago. Jesus is walking along the beach with Peter, being followed along by John. If I want John to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me, Peter. 
Because of this, the rumour spread among the believers that this disciple would not die, but Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't die, only if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Why do you need to finish John's gospel by quashing a rumour? Because John has recently died. He wrote these things down and we know his testimony is true. Who's the we who know his testimony to be true? They are John's trusted elders who have assembled John's work and done the final edit and published what we know to be John's gospel. And so because of this chronological span of the New Testament writings, we see the growth and development of the Apostle John over a period of time. We see a young firebrand transformed into a respected elder. And it is this transformation in John that so intrigues us. And so for the next few moments, I want to have a closer look at this developing picture of John the Apostle, or John the Evangelist, as he's sometimes known. Okay, when we're first introduced to John in the, in the Gospels, we see that he is a Galilean fisherman, the son of Zebedee. He's got a brother named James, and they work with their father in the family business uh, alongside some hired men. In Luke's Gospel, we actually learn that James and John, the two brothers, they had some kind of working partnership with two other brothers named Simon and Andrew, also fishermen, and it was actually those two sets of brothers whom together Jesus called to follow him. And he would make them fishers of men. Later in, uh, in Luke's gospel, we learn how John and James, the two brothers, sons of Zebedee, we learn how they got their nickname. Do you know what their nickname is? It's very cool. The Sons of Thunder. I, I would like a nickname like that somehow, right? Okay. So Jesus gave Peter the nickname, well, gave Andrew, the, uh, sorry, Simon the nickname Peter or Petros, which means rock. Okay. So Jesus also gave a nickname to James and John, the Boanerges, the Sons of Thunder. Why would he give them that nickname? Well, there was one occasion. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He's travelling through Gentile territory. And the Samaritans refused to welcome Jesus. And so in Luke 9, we read this. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And Jesus turned and rebuked them. And his disciples went on to another village. Faced with rejection by the Samaritans, the Boanerges brothers, they want to go straight for the nuclear option. Lord, let's call down fire from heaven. That'll teach them. Interesting angle on evangelism, isn't it, if you think about that? Just nuke them. Okay. Because, of course, Jesus says, listen, cool it, sons of thunder. Okay? They have that nickname. It was well known. On the upside, though, of this character tray, James and John are clearly very passionate followers of Jesus. They're a little rough around the edges, but... They're following Jesus passionately. They're the same two guys, who remember, who came to Jesus and they said secretly, can you give us the best seats in the kingdom? And we read that in Mark 10. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, 
came to him, teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Nice setup, right? What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. In reply to them, in effect, Jesus says, be careful what you ask for. And that honour is not for me to grant. Interesting, isn't it? Was it ambition? Was it selfishness? Was it pride that fueled the Boanerges brothers' request to Jesus? Who knows? But certainly they earned Jesus' rebuke in the conversation that followed. But here's the strange thing. It was the sons of thunder and the rock, Peter, James and John, who become Jesus' inner sanctum. Despite all of their obvious faults, Jesus invites them right into some of his most intimate moments. Okay, when it really mattered, Jesus says, I want you three with me. They were right there when Jesus raised the little girl from the dead. Her parents were sent out of the room, but those three were with him. At the transfiguration on the top of Mount Hermon, as Jesus prayed earnestly with the Father and they hear the Father's voice from the cloud, they are there. They were there in the conversation about the fall of Jerusalem in Mark 13. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus prays with blood dripping from him, earnestly with the Father, Jesus had invited them along. They were asleep, but he had invited those three to be with him. And it was in that context, I think, where John became known as also the Beloved. That nickname, the Beloved, appears in John's Gospel, and I suspect it may have been inserted by John's editors after his death. It's only in the latter part of the Gospel. That last reference, John 21.20, from our reading today, is where, as I said before, Jesus is speaking with Peter about John. And it's the first time in reading that whole gospel that you learn that this is the personal testimony of John written down in contrast with the other three gospels. This is the result of mature thought, of a lifetime following Jesus. At the time of writing, John is older, he is wiser, and he is mature. And so a wonderful transformation has taken place. One of the Boanerges brothers has become the beloved. Kyrios has turned into Roseville somehow. And it is this transformation that surely unlocks the dawn of discipleship. Being a Christian and following Jesus means that we will be transformed. Not once but constantly, daily even. The impact of our being with Jesus cannot leave us unchanged. Challenge, repentance, growth, reorientation, transformation, these are like the outward signs of authentic discipleship. And so St Andrews invites us all this year, beginning today, if you, if you like, to buy into this kind of discipleship. We want to be transformed by Jesus. 
That's what we're on about here. I know it sounds a little threatening, a little risky. It sounds a little bit like I don't actually know what I'll be called to leave behind. I feel that too. I think John felt that too as he walked away from his nets and his boat. But he did. So we're asking the question, well, what does this journey of transformation, this journey of discipleship, what does it teach us? We've already identified in our series to date that being a disciple of Jesus simply means to be a learner. But we are not learners of a philosophy. We are not learners of a doctrine. We are not learners of a curriculum. We are learners of a person, Jesus Christ, living for him, becoming like him, being used by him. He is our curriculum, if I could put it that way. Christian disciples are learners of Jesus. And John, beloved, mature, wise in the ways of Jesus, he's eager for us to join him as a disciple. When we read that opening paragraph of John's letter to the churches, as Bruce read for us a few moments ago, we see this great urgency. Join with us. So I hope you've got access to a Bible. I know that you have to kind of grab your own as you come in, or you bring your own even better. Uh, Perhaps it's in paper or on a device. Let's look at those first four verses of that letter. I'll read them out. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared... We've seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you that eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. In this process of following Jesus, how was John's mind changed, his thinking, how is that formed? Do you notice as you read this, the immediacy of John's testimony? He's talking about something, someone who he's heard, who he's seen with his own eyes. He says, I've gazed upon him. I've touched him with my hands. This isn't a secondhand experience of someone telling us about how they once heard about Jesus. This is not someone else's thinking, someone else's opinion or conclusion. This is personal. And it's direct. And our following of Jesus will be much the same. I I note John, of course, he had a unique privilege of actually seeing Jesus in the flesh and of talking with him audibly, personally. But you know what? That doesn't actually guarantee anything. In fact, it might have actually been harder for John to become Jesus' disciple because of that. You think there were many people, thousands of people who met Jesus, who personally witnessed the miracles, who listened to his teaching, uh, up close and personal, who did not become disciples. As they looked upon Jesus, they saw only a human being, a mere man, and not the Son of God not the physical revelation of God in time and space in human form. So yet John is a different category of witness to us, but whether that makes it easier or harder, I'm not really sure. Consider this, John lived only with Jesus for about three years. 
And yet his subsequent life of discipleship lasted another 60 or 70 years before his death. His experience of Jesus, for the most, would have been the same of ours. Invisible, mediated only by the Holy Spirit. So comparisons aside then, John's immediacy here, his testimony throughout all of his other writings tell us discipleship requires some kind of personal contact, actual engagement. There's got to be a relationship. It doesn't have to be bodily and, and, and visible, but it must be personal and it must be real. It's close proximity that brings about a change of mind. Another way we notice that John's mind has been formed as a follower of Jesus is that he understands that he now has fellowship with God. We're in verse 3. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. If you're a long-time member of St. Andrews, you know this word. This is a Greek word, koinonia. And it describes a partnership or a shared purpose, a a mutual concern and and common life together. Jesus brings us into a koinonia fellowship with God. It's outrageous, don't you think? God Almighty, eternal and all-powerful, welcomes us into a partnership of mutual sharing, of love, companionship. I, I try to take hold of that truth, and you know what? It, it, it changes everything for John, I think it changes everything for us, for me. We hardly have a thing in common with God, but he welcomes us into fellowship. He says, you're with me, we're together. And this word koinonia is just one way of describing the disciples' new relationship with God. As you read through John's testimony, you realise that there's all sorts of words and ideas and concepts that he uses to describe exactly the same fellowship. For example, John talks a lot about knowing God. He doesn't mean knowing about God, you know, having the full set of data on God and that topic. He's talking about knowing God relationally. There is an authentic connection involving communication and sharing. When I tell you I know my wife and she knows me more than anyone else, that relational kind of knowing is what Jesus talks about when he says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Knowing God in this way, actually means being one with him, living with him, actually living in him. He lives in us. And so when Jesus prays, listen to his prayer for us. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. A few different ideas and words and perspectives Jesus brings together to describe the kind of relationship 
that a disciple has with God. Sharing fellowship with God, as John calls it at the beginning of that first letter, it's just one way of expressing that reality. It sounds almost outrageous if you say this out there. Go and shout this in the street and see how it sounds, all right? We are so loved by God that he invites us to share life with him, to share love and purpose and friendship with him. He is in us and we are in him. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And the result of this new relationship is that we have eternal life. And so at the Last Supper, Jesus prays, Father, the hours come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know God is eternal life. Summing up our eternity, our reason that we exist, the purpose and our destiny of the human being is that we know God. We have fellowship with him. And it is this kind of relationship that will change our lives in a great way, in a good way. Being a disciple of Jesus means this much and a whole bunch more. Sharing fellowship with God means that we share fellowship with each other. That's what John says in in verse 3. We've already read it. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And so that union that we share with God in Christ, that mutual concern, that common life, that's actually what bonds us together. As Christian people, because I belong to Jesus, I belong to you as well. This shared fellowship, that's actually the basis of all Christian relationships. It's why disciples don't attend church. We are the church. We belong to Christ and we belong to each other. And so we delight to be church together. As the circle of Christian fellowship enlarges, as it's extended, that's what makes John's joy complete. It's kind of a hot day. It's humid. We're kind of getting to that bit at the end of the service. I want to say there is something super more important that we have to... Can Can you go with me for another couple of minutes? We can do that. Great. Strap your seatbelts on. Here we go. Our changed mind has to bring about changed actions. So in verse 5 of this opening of John's letter, he writes, This is the message that we've heard from him, Jesus, and we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie And do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You can see John's logic, can't you? 
If Jesus has brought his disciples into fellowship with God, then we must live his way. At the beginning of this letter and throughout his gospel as well, John uses this analogy of light and dark. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. If we really live in fellowship with God, we walk in the light. The darkness is left behind. Learning Jesus is going to change the things that we do for good. Like a beautiful love affair, if I could put it this way. Work with me on this, okay? You know the classic love affair story? Uh, It might begin with a chance meeting. Then there's the flirting, the growing tension. Nervous laughter, perhaps. Then culminating in some contrived occasion, there is the kiss. Fireworks. Reprise of the Saccharine 80s pop song, okay? This is the classic love story, okay? That's when established patterns of behaviour change. He's no longer out late at night with his boozy mates. She's suddenly into new hobbies, interests and pursuits, all shared with a new love. My point is simply this. Love changes behaviour. We adopt the ways and the values of our beloved, for better or for worse. True discipleship is like this. Love changes us. And we adopt the values and the ways of our beloved. Following Jesus is not a self-improvement program. Following Jesus means we walk in the light as he is in the light. Because of the potency of our relationship with him, Love changes us. I wonder what you think of marriage enrichment programs. There's some good ones around there. Um, The Alpha does one. Uh, ADM has got a new one, uh, Building Strong and Safe Marriages, highly recommended. Uh, We ran one of these marriage enrichment programs this past year as part of Equipping Month. I actually think these programs are great. But we should never confuse them with the marriage itself. Okay, building skills and, and strengthening communication and you know, dis- discussing our stress points in the context of a, of a course, they're all good things to do, but they are not the relationship. They support the relationship. And in the same way, when we talk about discipleship and spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible and praying and worshipping and serving, uh, quick plug, as we do in our 2020 discipleship course... They're like marriage enrichment, right? They, they, they develop skills and we practice and our relationship is helped. But we don't confuse them for the actual relationship. Can I encourage you to get on board with the 2020 Discipleship Program? It's, it's all there, you can find it. it it's just a, there are heaps of prayers. Grab anyone that works for you, really, where you build your skills and develop your understanding and you practice living in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Learn to walk in the light. Be in the light because he is in the light. Leave behind your darkness, whether it's addictions or bad habits or wasteful distractions, Spiritual disciplines like reading your Bible, prayer, community, 
generosity, service, simplicity, fasting. These things bring joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that joy that brings transformation. In the end, we don't know what the beloved Apostle John did in his relationship with Jesus, but we know he was wonderfully formed by this most important of all relationships. Throughout January, we've been looking at Jesus through the eyes of his first disciples, eager to start learning Jesus for ourselves. We're not learning a subject, it's not a curriculum, we're learning a person. He is our master whom we follow. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, has shown us that learning Jesus will lead to transformation. We share fellowship with the living God. We are on a pathway of continual change. And so this, this new year, throughout the whole year, is our time to get to know John, get to get to know God as John did in new ways. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and Father, we are humbled by the way that the Lord Jesus Christ has brought us into living fellowship with you. Thank you. Please will you shape us and form us and grow us so that we may delight to walk in the light with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have some questions, Stu. Sure. The first one is, <clears throat> excuse me, what does this fellowship look like across the week, Monday to Friday? Hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you for that question because this fellowship must be through the whole week. It, it, if, if your fellowship with God consists of turning up to church on an hour on, for an hour on Sunday, then it's probably fairly thin. Um, for each of us, this fellowship with the Lord will look a little different depending on your age and stage and your personal style and all those sorts of things. But there will be some consistent things about our fellowship with the Lord. It's got to be personal. So you will be spending personal time with God. Um, in that time, um, I would encourage you to use some of those spiritual disciplines to actually read your Bible. If God speaks clearly and unambiguously today, he does so through the Bible. Soak yourself in it. Enjoy it. I like the word marinate yourself in it. Love God's word in a way that it changes you. Uh, so fellowship with God through the week will involve your personal time with him. Prayer, obviously, uh, and many other things as well. But because our fellowship is with God and with one another, fellowship with God will involve fellowship with other people. Um, doesn't mean that they'll be the nicest people in the world. Christians are far from perfect. We all know that. But they are brothers and sisters in Christ, gifted to us to help us grow, to help in this process of transformation. So set some time aside to be with other Christians through the week. Perhaps you'll meet with a, a trusted close friend for prayer, perhaps for an hour together on a Tuesday morning or something like that. Or perhaps you'll join a small group, highly recommended. 
get with a bunch of people who will also shape you through the work of God as you meet together. Prioritise time with God and with one another. Style is your own choice. That's kind of what fellowship is going to look like in a day-to-day. Stu, I think this question comes from um, hearing um, John referred to as the beloved disciple. Does Jesus love some of his disciples more than others? Yeah. Um, I wondered that question too. Does Jesus love some disciples more than others? I don't know, and I don't think so, actually. Uh, It's a little bit like asking a grandmother who's your favourite grandchild. Um, And yet there's something about John that makes him seem particularly loved by Jesus. And I'm actually wondering, I'm just wondering out loud here, if it might not be uh, John's response of love to the Lord himself that actually marked him as beloved. How do you know that he's beloved? It doesn't mean that nobody else is beloved. It just means that this one is loved too, for he loves much. So I don't think it means that there's a comparison going on, this title, The Beloved. Um, Perhaps we're all beloved. But John's love for the Lord Jesus made it clear that he certainly was loved.